training, mindset, integrity, incremental improvement. What can you do better today? Start right here with the Pendola Project. Welcome back to the Pendola Project. This is your host, Matt Pendola. And I am Jake Parker. We're here with episode 53. This one, Matt, was powerful, and it started from a powerful email that we got from a listener. This one is about the invisible war, and by this, this listener, she means eating disorders, and particularly eating disorders that are perpetuated in sports. Yeah, it's such a tough subject. I'm so happy that we were able to tackle it. It wasn't easy, and it took us a little while to even decide on how we were going to approach this. We did some research. As we talk about in this episode, our listener actually gave us a lot of great links to do good research, and she had her own personal story that we were able to work with and to discuss a little bit more. So we had that real-life example and that awareness, and we are really grateful that she gave us that transparency in the first place and brought this to our attention. This is something I think important to talk about and to bring it out there. On a personal note, as a father myself, of a young girl that is going to probably deal with a lot of these types of influences in her life. Not probably, she will. I need to be able to arm her with the right information. And that is something that I'm extremely grateful for to get this type of insight from our listener. Thank you so much. This was it was a tough one, but I'm really glad that we were able to do it. Yeah, it was incredibly brave of her to open up to us like this. And we're talking things like coaches measuring girls' thighs and saying they're too big and your waist is too big. You're too heavy. You need to cut weight. Just really sick stuff. And so we got a little fired up in the moment of this, but it's important. And if you're dealing with these kinds of things, you're not alone. And this listener's email is just an example of how I think think a lot of people are probably dealing with this, Matt. Yeah. And if you are a parent and you have a child that's involved with sports or any type of situation where you think maybe that your child might be influenced in this type of direction, definitely be aware, get involved, understand what's going on, ask questions and do a little investigating, but be aware for sure, because we can't assume that this stuff is not being said. Unfortunately, we found that coaches a lot of times are instigating some of these issues, and there are those kind of influences, and it, it goes well beyond coaches. And then I would also say that there are mistakes that people make with the right intentions, Jake. And so I would say that if you are a coach or a parent or just any type of influencer that may have even done some of this in the past yourself, and you know that what you say is going to affect your kids or athletes or just anybody around you, and you have that kind of influence on them, it's a responsibility and we need to be aware of it. But we also make mistakes. We all do. And maybe we said things or did things that we shouldn't have. Understand that these things can change and we can make better decisions in the future about how we influence people. So just think about that. And maybe it's time to think a little bit more about how we are influencing. I would say choose your words very carefully and stay in your lane. Speaking of which, I am no expert. 
That's why we called in the troops. We are joined in this episode by Billy Haug in episode 53, The Invisible War. All right, fellas, we are back. This is the Pandola Project, episode 53. We're talking today about an email that we got that hit us particularly close to home. This was a very emotional, very vulnerable email we got from one of you listening to this podcast. The subject of the email is the invisible war in the running world. And here to help us break it down, we have Billy Haug. Billy, thanks for coming in. Hey, glad to be back. Billy, the episode we did with you early on in this podcast was one of my favorite ones. You are an absolute genius to me when it comes to nutrition, and you also are highly involved with the Pendola Project. What have you been up to at the gym? Yeah, so I think the last time we spoke, I was about to finish up my degree work in New York, and uh, come October, I graduated, so I'm a master in human nutrition now, and uh, back working with Matt for the time being. Hopefully, if all goes well, I'll be starting med school this fall of 2020. Way to go. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. But yeah, you're right. I've you know been around Matt for a long time and with his distance project. So with my recently completed degree work and my experience with him, uh, I think it's worth coming back on for the subject we have today. Absolutely. My first question for you is you said you got a master's in human nutrition. Is there a master's in like animal nutrition? You know, it's a good point. Uh, likely, uh, you know, animals need nutritional care as well, right. uh, especially when it comes to the animals we maybe look at in the research realm or even, uh, you know, horse riding is a big deal here in Nevada and horses and cattle require different nutritional needs than humans, certainly. Uh, and that's why it's troublesome when people compare animals to humans. But hey, uh, that's for a different podcast. So. A troubling amount of studies are done on mice and people mm -hmm. pick those up and think, oh, this is good for me, too. Yeah, I mean, they certainly hold their merit as far as mechanisms go and certain realms. But again, uh, we're going to start to uh, diverge if we get on that route. So, oh, yeah. say, This is a good point, though, Billy, because we talk about this jokingly a lot, the two of us, and we inform our athletes about this in the gym. But are you a cat or a rat? No. Well, a lot of the studies that you are preaching like it's going to turn everything into gold for you is based off of rodents, right? Yeah. Or the fact that, oh, you know, oxes are so strong, so you should eat like an ox. Well, do you have four stomachs? Uh, last <laughs> time I checked, <laughs> probably not. Do I? I don't know. I love it. So, um, Billy, with a lot of the different types of scenarios we talk about, and we were just talking before the podcast started today, Billy, you start off with a lot of interesting data for us in this podcast, but we want to know, first of all, what are your credentials? Why are you the person that I actually refer to a lot or go to a lot when I want to know more about a certain specific subject when it comes to nutrition, for example? Right. And I'm glad you brought that up because, as I said, I'm hopefully going to start medical school. So right now I'm not a doctor and this shouldn't be conceived as medical advice. I'm also not a registered dietitian. That's a separate internship program. They're two separate routes, similar, but my master's degree was more research focused and delving into basically evidence-based nutrition and science, which is why I come from a standpoint of confidence in the ability to talk about these issues. But at the same time, I'm not an RD in the sense that I've worked with a collective group of patients or have the ability, if I wanted to now, to go to a hospital and actually work in that setting as a RD. So um, I'm glad you brought that up, Matt, because it's an important detail to remember. So. so let's skip forward into the future a little bit, though, Billy, right? Mm -hmm. 
What will you envision yourself doing with all of this knowledge, information, with your degree? What, what will you be doing to serve others? Well, especially in Western medicine, we see that some of these chronic health conditions are the most plaguing things like type 2 diabetes, uh, metabolic syndrome, and obesity. And there's these are all very complex conditions, obviously, but nutrition, exercise, these lifestyle habits have a tremendous impact and uh, involvement in their pathology and treatment. So even just uh, my master's program, which was only a year long, was very intensive, but still only 12 months, has put me uh, at least at a route where I can be in an environment where I'm constantly learning about these things and gave me the foundation to conduct my own research and be able to incorporate some of these nutritional interventions into the broader medical scheme. So. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I know. I love that. And I'm bringing this up for a reason, too, guys. Our listeners out there, you may not even be aware of it or realize it, but there's a lot of times when you're taking information or listening to information or even reading online information that was not put together or was not constructed by somebody in the field even. So this is just something we want to keep in mind because there's a lot of influencers out there. And I just wonder sometimes, I know of people that are not RDs, but yet they are writing up nutrition plans. They are recommended a certain amount of calories a day for people. It seems like this is a trend almost that's happening more and more and more. And yet I look at who is actually doing these things. And a lot of times I end up realizing that, geez, this person doesn't have any more credentials than I do in this area. Why is it that they're writing up these programs? Do you think that this is ethical? Is this legal? To me, it should not even be legal. Well, I definitely think it should be legal. I mean, in the sense that basically they're exerting their First Amendment rights, you know, freedom of speech. Okay, fine. Yeah. (laughs) It's only if they were to do harm to someone in in some way. You don't think it could do harm? No, that's my problem with it. Sometimes I think it's doing some real harm. Right. But once you start, and I'm no lawyer as well, but as as far as I can see, (laughs) once you delve into the legality of that things, it's pretty easy to probably for them to skate by and actually not draw any charges, right? Okay, but, okay, uh, okay, fine. I would say it's malpractice at the very best. But they had no, uh, I mean, you, you can only really be tried of malpractice if you're already a physician, right? You so you're practice. in that position of authority. Yeah. So they're not in that position to begin with. So it's almost like they're... So, so because they're the ignorant and because they don't know, then that actually protects them. Uh, sort of. It's the same way if you're like watching the Super Bowl with your friends and none of you, especially me, never played football once. So I really just keep my mouth shut when I say, how could you not make that pass or whatever? Because (laughs) the more I think about it, I'm like, oh, there's a reason I'm not a professional football player. Okay. I like it. Yeah. Well, Billy, I guess I'm bringing all this stuff up because I believe that people should stay in their lanes, right? So as a coach, Yes, I've taken the time to learn about performance nutrition. I like to help my athletes to understand better choices. But just because the average person takes in X amount of calories, like the average female takes in 1,800 calories per day, okay? My point to bringing all this stuff up is that as coaches, I believe we need to stay in our lanes. And I did personally take some nutrition classes, even clinical nutrition, some performance nutrition. I had some certifications through Athletes Performance Institute. I had a mentorship there for nutrition. You know, da-da-da-da-da. It just 
ultimately gave me some better information that I could help my athletes with, but I'm certainly never dictating to them how many calories they should take in. I just want to get, give them options. I'm not telling them about their macros. We're going to talk more in the future podcasts about if it fits your macros. But this is something that I'm very passionate about because we actually have so many misconceptions as coaches and those of us who are spending a lot of time with athletes, we understand how dangerous this can actually be for our athletes. And I believe that we have a responsibility here to give people good information, but not to speak in absolutes and certainly not to think, for example, that one weight is ideal for, say, a female athlete, which leads us into today's podcast, very special podcast. I want to personally thank this listener who gave us permission, by the way, to talk about this subject. She emailed us a few months back, actually, and we are we took some time to do our research and also just really understanding that we want to give value to this very vulnerable, very transparent email. And we appreciate it so much. But that's right, Matt. This one hit me pretty hard because this this emailer, she was just so vulnerable and open with us. And that's like really cool to me about how how the impact of a podcast can reach people on such personal levels. The short version of her story is that she was a runner. She was a distance runner and she had a coach that was making her question her body type and so that led to things like caloric restrictions oh you are eating too much or you're, you're too heavy and that ultimately led her to an eating disorder and the subject of her email is the invisible war in the running world and I'm glad that we're talking about this now because I imagine this is not an isolated incident there are probably lots of coaches out there who are stepping outside of their lanes and prescribing diets. Yeah, so I can tell you right there, Jake, for example, I was at a coach's seminar some years back, and they had asked this one coach to speak about his cross-country team. And I, he was very, very adamant that his runners needed to be weighed, weighed and scaled before and after their training because he was convinced that his females in this case had to be within a certain weight range to perform optimally. So that obviously that did not go well with everybody. And then actually there was another really well-known coach there that just ripped into this guy. I mean, was really, really aggressive about what it is that we need to project to our athletes. And I couldn't agree more. I think in those cases, it's a clear case that a coach has gone out of his scope. But the problem with this is that his runners, well, this is more than just with a certain, like it's not just with female athletes. This is happening more and more with male athletes. I have to say that part too. I think it's important that we realize this is across the board becoming a bigger problem. But this particular coach was actually coaching high school runners. So this, this email really hit home with me. I used to be a high school cross-country coach and track and field coach and starting to see this problem grow more and more 
because we misunderstand what it is that we can do to be better versions of ourselves, and we're getting that misinformation sometimes from the people we trust the most. And we have to understand that if we're, especially when we are coaches out there, and we have to understand that as parents too. I, you know, there's constantly going over things with my daughter to give her a healthy outlook on, well, health and fitness and just the way she sees herself. And even at eight years old, uh, it's amazing to me some of the things that come up already that she has questions about that really deal with some body image issues. And man, it's just stunning to me how much we misunderstand this. And even when we don't mean to, we give out information that can be hurtful. And, and this subject is not just with distance runners either. In fact, the person who emailed us this was also a volleyball player, and she also shared some stats and some history there with her volleyball coach. What, what happened there? Well, yeah, and, and before I get right into that, just going back to what you said about that coach collecting the weight every time, and really we have to question why are we even doing that? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the only time you really have to worry about a specific weight on the scale is when you're cutting or bulking for a sport where that matters, right? So if you're planning to fight at a certain weight, that might necessitate a weight cut. And even then, it's probably going to be something more of like losing water weight or something like that. Or maybe you're trying to move up a weight class and you're weightlifting meat or powerlifting meat. Well, and can I say something there too? Because I've worked with professional fighters. This even has changed over the last decade or so. They used to cut all this weight and and they thought, okay, I'm going to be that much stronger if I fight in a weight class that's say 10 pounds lighter than I am now. But what they would find is they had no energy. So they're actually staying closer to their natural weight. And then they're within say 5% of that at any one time. So they're doing things a little bit differently there oftentimes, or at least a lot of athletes are moving in that direction. But unfortunately, the misconception is I remember talking about this with Logan Miller, who was a pole vaulter that I had coached and she went to the Olympic trials. Same thing was going on with her teammates where one of the girls on her team, for example, thought that she could go higher if she weighed less. And unfortunately, at first it worked um, until it didn't, right? And eventually what happened is she had lost a lot of strength and she just did not have the ability for the velocity anymore in order to get her mass specific force going in the right direction. She needed to have more strength and she had lost too much of that. And in addition to that, she was in poor health at this point and had an issue with her eating. So the, there was a lot of things there that we had discussed. Thankfully, Logan had always kept a healthy mindset about those things. And she was perfectly okay in her mind with weighing a little bit more, but being able to perform at her best all year and not worrying about the scale the way that other athletes were. But unfortunately, this is also with sports like cross country or track where people think that if they weigh less, that means faster. And it doesn't necessarily mean that. And there are some times when you can lean up a little bit more, let's say, and understanding that you've been able to keep the right relative strength for mass specific force, right? So in other words, you are able to use the strength that you have 
at an optimal body weight and you can perform at your best. But there is no one weight for everybody, certainly. And also, I can speak from personal experience where you lose too much and you start to go in the opposite direction. You no longer have the energy to give to your sport the way you did before. So it's a real slippery slope when you start to worry about scale weight. And I never do, and I never advise that my athletes do. Now, and this is why we see performance manifest in a variety of different body types. It's the same thing we were talking about before with movement perfectionism, or the fact that if you don't perform this exercise within a strict range of constraints, you're going to hurt yourself or not be able to perform well. And we have just ample amounts of evidence to suggest the contrary exists. There's a variety of different types of movement patterns and body types in sport that lead to successful productions of strength and also overall general, what we'd classify as good outcomes. I'm, one that comes to mind immediately is the Milrose Games were a couple of weekends ago. And the gal who won the 1500, El Perrier, she has what some would classify as probably an uncharacteristic middle distance runner type. She's very strong, uh, still lean, but visible amounts of muscle mass and definition. And yet she set an American record that day. So I love that you brought her up. She's a perfect example. You guys should check that out on YouTube or something. It was an exciting race, but um, what a great example of how we don't all have to have a specific body type. And she's setting an American record and yet did not quite look like some of the other girls she was racing against. And that's not to say those other girls were the wrong body either. We all have different performance levels with different attributes and my VO2 kinetics, for example, shouldn't be quote unquote possible at the weight that I feel optimal at, but it goes way beyond just numbers and people have to understand that. And it basically boils down to how do you feel? How are you able to maintain? And are you able to be consistent with what you're doing? Anything you do in extreme, you're not going to be able to be consistent with. And that's also a factor, plus the fact that anything that's a hurtful habit, obviously eating disorders, we develop some pretty hurtful habits that can really be a detriment to our long-term health. And we need to be very aware about what kind of risks that we're taking for a short-term reward. And even that short-term reward is fleeting because long-term we can peak at a much higher level if we're being healthier about our strategies getting to that point. Well, and this is just another example of people getting caught up in the numbers as well. Just because something can be measured doesn't mean it's useful or correlates with any kind of performance, right? So going back to this email from our listener, and I'm quoting her here, she said, coaches collected her height, mile time, jump distance and this was also the first time she stood on a scale and she was told she was overweight that they measured her thighs and that they were too large her waist and they told her it was too wide and that her breasts contained too much fatty tissue sick it it, it angers me so much that people are doing this especially with you know kids these are children teenagers that we're talking about so not only are you affecting their current health you're probably going to run the risk of long-term mental health damage and that was really the crux of this listener's email and i want to quote from a little bit farther down she says if i had a buck for every time myself and another athlete chuckled about our lifelong eating disorders like they were just blisters on our toes I would never have to work again. And that probably started because of coaches like this getting out of their lanes and making recommendations that they had no business making. Well, and these recommendations, as I alluded to, have no basis or correlation with performance. Out of those metrics I read off, 
we're talking about volleyball here, height was probably the only thing that made any any relevance there. I mean, there's a statistic now, if you're an American in the U.S. that's over seven feet tall, there's like a 30% chance you're playing in the NBA. And that's how some of these metrics can actually correlate. But other than that, none of those things were even worth measuring. And even the measurements they were taking, who knows? Again, it, it's so vague as well. It just seemed to be a tactic to shame people versus actually help people out. Which the shame, if that's the goal, it clearly worked because this listener dealt with this for years, is still dealing with this. And I don't know, if you're a parent, how you can tolerate a coach telling your kid, your thighs are too big, your waist is too large. Yeah, you know, not only that, guys, but as a coach myself for just about 20 years now, I've unfortunately lost count of how many people that I've talked to when they were adults that had developed eating disorders when they were kids, when they were in high school. It, it might be something about going to the beach and looking a certain way in the bikini, or it this is now something where it's a performance issue and they think that losing this certain amount of weight or hitting this certain number on a scale is going to give them the performance needs that they have, which that does not, like Billy said, this does not equate to a Division One scholarship because you hit this weight. But these coaches that are putting this out there, like these are the numbers that are hit. I mean, I've lost track also of how many phenomenal athletes that I've been able, blessed to work with that have made it to elite levels where really they don't fit the mold. And they're proving every single day that you don't have to look a certain way to be an optimal athlete. Right. And it's more cause and effect, right? So the reason you see people at the top level take sports like Olympic weightlifting or gymnastics have very similar body types because especially with Olympic weightlifting, there's a certain leverage you apply to the bar and how your levers are associated anatomically that puts you at a more advantageous position the same way people will like pin genetics on people who in bodybuilding shows. So it's more like the sport picks the person, right? Not like if you can obtain this body shape or whatever that you're going to be automatically good at this sport. And again, it's just another example of where our language matters here and setting our expectations matter uh, in the pain and rehab seminar we went to, if I put the expectation, oh, the goal is to have zero pain, that's unrealistic, right? Pain is a part of the human experience, and it's something that we can try to mitigate or understand, but eliminating it isn't the goal. The same way saying, hey, if you hit this weight, the expectation is you're going to perform to your absolute best, and that's just setting someone up for failure. Absolutely. I, no, it's This is actually something we talked about in our previous podcast, Jake, uh, what podcast was that, Jay? Yeah, that was just our last one, episode 52. Yeah, so we we have certain attributes. We have quote-unquote body types that might be more predisposed for certain sports. And that's what, Billy, ultimately you're saying. And I agree with, with that. You know, there's stereotypes for a reason. And we have to understand that most likely the sport that we're attracted to is because we're probably built a little bit more for that sport. But even if we aren't built as well for that sport, who knows, maybe we are an outlier that can still be able to perform at um, you know any level that you are happy in and that you are achieving 
your goals is a good level. But we will ultimately find our way in these sports. We don't need to be told what we need to weigh in order to be able to focus on better versions of ourselves, right? And again, the, most of these things are unmodifiable, right? Like I, the only way I'm going to change my bone length is if I get part of it sawed off, right? Or I'm not going to be able to change my muscle belly length and stuff like that. Does that mean I can't Olympic weightlift? Not at all. I can go into the gym and if it's something I like enjoy in a way like training, I'm more than welcome to do that. The same way that someone maybe that's not optimal for running in terms of VO2 kinetics or uh, even certain genetic predispositions, they can still go out and train to run a half marathon or a 5k if that's your goal well None you know these and, things and, disqualify you yeah no no, no. I, I love it because i was just thinking back in my track and field days and i don't know if uh, you did this guys but my coach had us all do all the events they offered the first like week of the season and uh, i threw that shot put you know it, it probably went about uh i was lucky i didn't break my foot right it was basically barely went in front of me and then another guy did it and uh just about uh set a school record he ended up actually his name was kirk he ended up being second in the country that year he was just a, a natural at it right but actually what it was is it was a great way for us to kind of see what it is that we did have attributes for but it didn't take me much time to go yeah 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 i'm gonna go do the five thousand so that was that was something that i quickly learned that i was kind of built for but i also had a passion for it for a reason i do i do believe that sometimes culture can be really really good in the sense that we're wanting to be a part of something that feeds into our passion sometimes though i think that because we may say, be interested in a specific culture, like all the cool kids in high school are playing volleyball and you want to play volleyball. Like I know that that's actually a big thing around here, that volleyball is a big culture here. And, and it's, it, you are kind of in like Flynn when you're playing volleyball or you get onto the varsity volleyball team or basketball team, football team, you know, these kind of things. And you may be attracted to that sport because of the community and the culture, but you're not necessarily designed for it as much as you are for something else. Well, again, if you're happy doing it, fantastic. Just realize that you won't necessarily fit that mold and you should train and eat and do everything else accordingly to that. Well, and again, uh, bring this back to our listener who so graciously wrote in. Well, one last little bit I wanted to mention from her emails when they said she had too much fatty tissue they said this would lead to her to easily gain weight as she got older and this was when she was 13 years old so again basically noceboing her setting that negative expectation what is she thinking about for the rest of her life every time she sits down to a meal or gets encountered with this she says oh for some reason i've been told that no matter what i do i'm at a metabolic disadvantage through a metric that has <laughs> no bearing to reality no sensitivity or specificity as far as the test goes yet she has this vision now that I'm going to gain weight no matter what. And it's setting her up for a battle between her health and her sport, because I've got another little quote right here. It says, it has been nearly impossible for me to battle my eating disorder while running competitively and have at times had to step away from the sport I love altogether to focus on my well-being. And it's because there are these gatekeepers who have their star athlete who maybe happens to have that ideal body type. And the coach goes, oh, well, why don't you look like Julie? She does so well. You 
too much and your thighs are too big, you should be more like her. Yeah, no, this is running is supposed to be a sport that we enjoy for our own personal reasons, maybe. But I know that going out into the mountains and watching the sunrise is some of the creates some of the best images in my sport life. And I look forward to being able to do that with my daughter one day. And that to me is the point is that it feeds into our passion, into the, our legacies, who we want to be as people and our athletic life should support that. But I think there's so much misinformation out there. For example, some people that are preaching that you should only eat X amount of calories a day, and they don't really even have any basis for those amount of calories, but they're also telling you that, oh, you need to eat a bowl of oatmeal before you go running. Well, maybe you do, maybe you don't. I think that that mental flexibility has to come from each person in understanding their body and your energy needs. So again, this comes back to the individual as a coach, how can we think that we can preach and tell each individual exactly what they need and how much of it that we need? So with that in mind, Billy, we have all variables in here that we'd like to discuss with our athletes. We have clean eating, right? We have our optimal choices, our best power foods, let's say, right? But there are also foods in there that we should eat just because we enjoy eating it and we have to have a good balance to it all. So what's a better way to think about this, this problem that we're facing? Well, that's a good point. In all these scenarios, there's some reframing, particularly around the paradigm of how the person views nutrition that has to happen. And you brought up this whole clean eating thing, which really has no definition or practicality and is likely an unsubstantiated claim they heard from somewhere that would be very unfortunate if it was a coach or someone close to them. Well, if you're using that term, likely you don't have much background in the field at all. Because in this scenario, there's dirty or bad foods, which are usually associated with this amplified desirability and are more subject to binging or overconsumption. These behaviors that we see prevalent in, in eating disorders. But again, you have to try to, or I would recommend to remove this dichotomous thinking and give the power back to yourself rather than the food. By describing foods as good or bad, you're basically giving them this undeserved power. But by that said as well, food is still just a small part of the puzzle. A uh, theme we see emerging here is that there's some mental outlooks and behavioral tendencies that need to be changed in order to make uh, a proper recovery from these type of detrimental behaviors. Do you think things like peer groups matter a lot, Billy? Because I'm imagining an, a case study of someone dealing with a coach like this. I imagine that not all of the athletes are going to realize that the, the coach's advice can be toxic. And so some of those athletes are going to buy into it. Now, let's say state championships are over. We're all out to dinner and I want to get a cheeseburger and I feel shameful for wanting that. And so everybody else says, you shouldn't get that. You shouldn't eat that. We're not going to eat that. Later that night, I go home and I've got four Big Macs that I'm going to binge on. Yeah. So you spoke about establishing a robust support system, which I think is incredibly important. And uh, this isn't from my own experience of dealing with patients. Just want to clarify that, but just from listening to how these disorders are dealt with in a clinical sense, but having access to multiple healthcare professionals or peer groups like that can be incredibly important. Also might encourage the individual to actually open up. There's this kind of fear of being 
stigmatized if you have one of these disorders or being sought as like a failure or that you're fearful. But really, we just have to kind of reverse this script, right? It, it should be viewed as an incredible feat of courage or feat of strength that you're opening up about this or actually having the power to deal with it on a day-to-day basis. And we saw that in our listener who wrote in, that's just, that should be applauded and not stigmatized or viewed as a bad thing. Because these things exist, whether people know about them or not. And the more you can make them out in the open, the more you're able to help people. And that's why groups like uh, Anita are, you know, are so helpful and so available to those around us. I think that's vital. And again, I, I want to just second what you said. I, I commend this listener and you know who you are if you're still listening. And we appreciate this so much. She even describes this as the invisible war. And she's right, because I think a lot of people go through this alone. And when you have toxic peer groups that come from the top down, you're going to feel extremely isolated. But that's another reason why I love our platform of this podcast is because we can hopefully reach the ears of people who may be dealing with these things or or even just know people who are. You know, she's one of those people that is very well read, highly intelligent. You can see that by the way that she writes, but also she left us several links. She made the research really easy, which was great. And um, obviously something she had spent a lot of time researching herself. And the one thing that I really wanted to make sure that we talked about here was, I'm just going to take this right out of her email, but part of the numbers or the resources that she was quoting from said the prevalence of eating disorders is higher in athletes than in controls. So we have to remember that this isn't necessarily always being reported. The numbers we see are probably higher because a lot of athletes don't want to admit that they have this type of uh, issue or disorder. They might be removed from the team or not be allowed to compete. So they keep it hidden as long as they can a lot of times and higher in female athletes than and in male athletes, as I mentioned before, the male athlete numbers are rising, but unfortunately it is higher in female athletes. And then more common among these competing in leanness dependent and weight dependent sports than other sports. It goes on to say a collaborative effort among coaches, athletic trainers, parents, physicians, and athletes is optimal for recognizing, preventing, and treating eating disorders in athletes. And I mean, it could not be better said than that. I will tell you that not too long ago, I was actually working on the table with an athlete. He had run for a major organization. I don't want to get too specific. He had told me that his girlfriend was also an elite runner and she had an eating disorder that she had battled through. And he said, She was not the only one. In fact, there were three out of four females on her team that had an eating disorder or had had an eating disorder in the past. So those numbers are scary. And of course, he told me himself that on his team that there were more guys than ever before that it had the same types of issues. So th- this is a real thing that we need to talk about. We need to expose it. And I know that this is what this listener wanted is let's get this talked about. Let's expose this. Let's realize that it's really, it's out there. It's important that we realize, especially as if we're influencing other people in any way that we need to be cognizant of what we're saying and why we're saying it and how we're influencing these young athletes or 
for any of these people, especially as a coach myself, I'm thinking about any client of any age, how what I say can really influence them in one direction or another. And that's uh, that's a power and a responsibility we need to be very aware of. And one thing I'll add to that too, is uh, as a coach, a trainer, healthcare professional, et cetera, who doesn't have background knowledge and you know I'm a master's in nutrition but I had maybe a lecture or two on this subject which makes me no expert in this field in particular and that's why it necessitates some kind of specialist who has years of training of both classwork and and work in the field so if you're someone in this position that may have to deal with clients or athletes with these issues I recommend that you have a referral team that you can reach out to that would be glad to take the reins and help you out in this situation because it can be overburdening for the coach or you may be sitting there going, what do I do? I I have no experience with this before, or I'm not sure how to approach this issue. That's well said, Billy. And I was a competitive distance runner myself. Again, I was naturally on the leaner side. This is not something that I ever really had to strive for. It just was kind of how I was built and I was able to commit to some really stringent training programs, some higher level running, and I'm blessed to have been able to have the attributes to do that. But I tell you what, I ate like a horse when I felt like eating like a horse. I never decided on how many calories I was going to take in after a run. I mean, I do think so much of it is just lost in these numbers and the apps we have today and all the information we have out there. It's almost too much. Back then in the day, it was just like, man, you're hungry, eat, you're, you feel good. Okay, good. And then, I mean, do you want to eat more? No. Okay. You feel good. Okay, great. And an hour or two hours later, I want a banana. I'm going to have a banana. These are just, I know it sounds so simple, but I think we've lost some of that. And of course, again, I was kind of built for my sport of endurance, but I don't think that coaches trying to find some sort of secret answer out there to what type of exact body weight that your athlete should be or something like that to be optimal performance wise, stop it already. Stop it already. That's just ignorant. The best athletes will rise to the top. The cream rises to the top. And that means that they happen to be the best attributes, maybe the best athletes for that sport, their passion took them there, et cetera, et cetera. There's no magic pill that's going to get that athlete there. And there's nothing you're going to say or do for that athlete to swing in their favor by 50% because you have them at a specific weight or at specific calories. I heard actually a really good coach tell me a couple of weeks ago, he told me that he could help to swing an athlete, maybe 5% in the right direction if he was doing his job well. So that's something that's, I think, really important to kind of remember and to finish with on that aspect is that we, we we give ourselves too much credibility as influencers when we are able to influence. This is a responsibility we need to take seriously and understand that the best thing we can do is just support our athletes, listen, understand, and verify when we have the right information, but never give out absolutes. One last thing, just uh, you sparked my memory with that 5% improvement thing. One more recommendation I would make, uh, especially to certain sports, is remove any incentive there is to dramatically cut weight. So thinking back to my rowing days, we had erg tests, right? So these were like 2K or 6K erg tests, and they were weight adjusted. So the average weight of the entire crew was posted in an Excel sheet, and your time would get 
you would get seconds added to the time or seconds decreased for that time depending on how far above or below that weight was. So, and it wasn't a linear progression, right? It was exponential. <laughs> it would it would follow a log style progression. So, it was much easier for someone to shed like five pounds of water weight overnight and weigh in low below the average and get, you know, somewhere in the realm of 15 to 20 seconds based off some arbitrary average weight, which would, you know, shift day to day versus like actually put in a proper training progression and decrease their TK time by, you know, five seconds. Decreasing that time in particular, I'd have to take a second off each 500, which is like equivalent to taking a couple seconds off your 400. And in the mile, what you just took off like eight seconds off your mile time, which as you know, Matt, at the elite level is incredibly hard to do. And if an athlete says I could either do that, and that's also a change that's going to materialize over several months, or I can just, you know, try to cut my weight down by another few pounds and get an even larger improvement. Why wouldn't I just do that? So again, if you're a coach who implements some sort of strategy like that, at least try to mitigate the incentive to cut weight dramatically or eliminate the protocol altogether. This just reminds me to guys of a marathoner I worked with and he was obviously very lean, and we keep talking about how especially a marathoner is going to be very lean, uh, elite level, very, very lean athletes. He gained six pounds over a two-year period. And you can, if, when you look at him and his body, you could tell that it was muscle. But it, it took about three pounds per year, which is about right. And it took a lot of intentional effort, by the way, to gain that muscle, but we wanted it. And I know that at first he was nervous about gaining some, some extra weight. And when he weighed six pounds additional muscle on his body, he ran the Olympic qualifying time for the marathon. So that's just an example of what you can do with the right body mass, with the right strength, and don't be afraid of good, honest strength, putting on that kind of weight. There's nothing wrong with a little extra weight when it's serving you. So I just want to finish this, guys, with just thanking the listener for being brave enough to write this email to us, being vulnerable, and really giving us some perspective. I know as a coach, you have helped me. There are lessons that I have learned because of what you shared with me. And I know that you helped me to get just a little bit better as a coach, understanding more and just making me more aware. I feel like I knew these things and I know these things, but it just makes me that much more aware that, geez, this is something that I have a responsibility for and I need to even think about these things more often realizing that I probably just looking at the statistics I probably currently have some athletes that might be dealing with this that I'm not even aware of because I'm not asking the right questions yeah from this listener's email I'm I'm inspired and I commend you for your bravery so much and you are not alone if you are in an environment where this may become a problem I encourage you to find a more supportive peer group and and if you're a little bit older and you are just dealing with these issues now later in your life, there are lots of groups out there for you. There's lots of groups on Facebook. People can help you. You are absolutely not alone. And I hope that we have done our job and done this topic justice by bringing it more to light. And that was all because we got a really vulnerable and honest email from a great listener. I encourage you listening to do the same. Pendola Project at gmail.
gmail.com and you can always get in touch on Facebook and Instagram as well. And I'd also like to say Billy Haug for dropping some knowledge with us. I appreciate you so much coming in, Billy. Jake, Matt, it was a pleasure to come back on. Uh, I guess I'll sign off with this. If you or a loved one wants more information or just wants to talk to someone, the naturaleatingdisorders.org is a great resource to to visit. They also have a helpline, and you can reach them at 800-931-2237. Thanks for listening.